All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from uh, Queens in the borough, Queensboro, New York City, on the 8th day of May, 2018. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows on the Voice America Business Channel, and I want to Invite each of you to keep your questions, comments, criticisms, and praises, or any other comments you might have. Send them along to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. We do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Today's sponsors are RN Resources, Belmoral Resources, Bontero Resources, Genesis Metals Corp., Klondike Gold Corp., Northern Empire, and Novo Resources. I've titled today's show, Stock Market Bubbles, Why Can't They Last Forever? David Stockman, Michael Oliver, Robert Carrington are my guests today. Keynesian economists have assumed the supernatural role of God in defying laws of nature as they pertain to the markets. They assume they can perform miracles. Misguided by such arrogance and falsehoods, politicians who have applied Keynesian theology promise a materialistic paradise on earth by simply creating debt-based money with keystrokes of a computer. Those purveyors uh, of Keynesian socialism would have you believe that heaven on earth can be achieved by printing endless amounts of money that drive stock prices ever higher, leaving the entire earth as one eternal paradise. They think uh, that the only thing required is for government to have unlimited power and unlimited money complements of the Federal Reserve. So long as the Fed can print money forever, driving stock prices to the moon, we could all live in luxurious splendor. All that is needed is to get people who believe in the laws of economics to disappear. Of course, it should be evident to anyone not burdened with university economics degrees that printing endless amounts of money, as the Keynesians propose, leads to a lack of price discovery for capital. And no one understands the pathology of Keynesian economics and its policy of denying price discovery for capital better than David Stockman, who will be um, with us in the second half of today's show. Uh, He will explain why the current stock and bond market bubbles are approaching a dramatic implosion and why the next stock and bond market crash may end up collapsing the entire monetary system. With gold now basing for the next major move higher, gold exploration companies like New Range Metals stand to benefit greatly as investors regain the understanding that gold is real money and that owning it is a surefire way to preserve your capital and your wealth, while holding fiat money is just as surely a way to lose it. Robert Carrington, the president of New Range Gold Corp., will be here with me right after the first commercial break 
to update us on his company's latest exploration efforts along Nevada's Walker Lane trend. And uh, he'll give us some insights on the potential for this company's shares to trade many times higher their current paltry 20 cent price. But right now, I'm really pleased to tell you that I have Michael Oliver with me once again to up- update us on uh, on some of the major important markets, the, the most important markets, the ones we look to uh, and the ones that are really the drivers for all the smaller markets. Um, thanks for joining me again this week, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. Always good to have you with us, and it's always good to tell my listeners that the website they should go to to learn more about your services, it's OliverMSA.com, Oliver. MSA.com. Well, Michael, David Stockman, who uh, will be on with me later today in the second half of today's show, uh, is convinced that interest rates are inevitably high, heading higher. Um, you, have a, uh, you have had, you personally, Michael, have had a very bearish view on the 10-year and 30-year U.S. Treasuries, but rates have fallen a bit lately. So does your work still convince you that uh, that we are in a major bear market for treasuries, or are we nearing an end of a decline? No, no it's, a, it's a major bear, and but within any major trend, there are always counter-trend moves. That's a law, okay? Mm-hmm. It's, the 87 crash is the only one that didn't have a counter-trend move. Of course, it, in effect, ended immediately as soon as it happened. But all other bear markets or bull markets have counter-trend moves. It's, it's a given. So you have to live with it. You have to anticipate. You have to decide, you know, how do, how do I weather these things? Do I have not such a heavy position or do I hedge or whatever? But right now in the T-bond market and the T-note market in the U.S., they've had a major price decline, major, massive, since uh, we gave a sell signal in October of 2016 and reiterated it with the January close of this year. And we're not far from the low right now, about two points off the low in the bonds, uh, you know, a couple decimals of percent in yield. Uh, I do think there is a chance, and I've been dealing with this for the last two weeks in our reports to subscribers, for a counter-trend rally. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if it happens. Often a counter-trend rally in bonds, uh, because I think bonds on the big picture and stocks on the big picture are both going down together, meaning price of bonds go down, yields up, stocks go down. But during that process, Whenever there's a period of sharp uh, stock decline, you know, a, panic, a little mini panic, such as uh-huh. the early February break, the T-bonds will firm up despite the bigger picture that says down. They'll firm up and have a counter-trend rally as a flight to safety. So, mm-hmm. um, I'm wondering whether what I see in the bonds is a potential near-term counter-trend rally of potentially six points or so from hmm. we had a recent low just below 42 i think you could see 48 maybe 148 excuse me 142 to 148 right now it's 143 and a half area uh will that occur because stocks produce another belt on the downside uh-huh and it's just a, it's just a thought. I don't know what the motive power will be if bonds have a counter-trend rally, uh, but I suspect that c- could be it because I think stocks, the laboring by stocks over the last oh six weeks or so, where they go up, they go down, they go up, they go down, but they don't go anywhere, uh, is potentially running out of gas. And mm-hmm. if their response to that is to roll over sharply and shed another few hundred S&P points quickly, like they did in early February, then that would be the excuse for bonds to have a counter-trend rally. No, mm-hmm. it won't sustain, and rates will dip during that process, but it'll be, you know, measured in weeks, maybe mm-hmm. even days, uh, and it won't sustain. But it, it's the potential, 
I do see the potential for that, and I've defined numbers to my subscribers that if we see in the T-bonds that it indicates that's starting. And, and, and my sneaking suspicion is that if it starts, it means the stocks are ready to start downside out of the mm-hmm. congestion zone. So mm-hmm. you, you fit, the, fit the two together right, in, in that regard. Um, I, guess, I guess as long as we have faith, as long as the market has faith in the system, the system itself is, is healthy and viable. You have this right. trade-off back and forth between stocks and bonds, but when confidence is completely lost, then you get you people look to exit the system, and they go to gold, right? Yeah, that's and, and commodities in general, which are a value play. Uh, you know, some commodities are are laying at theoretical zero. You know, as I term it. In other words, they, uh-huh. they're not going to zero. We know that, but uh, they get so close to it, and they just go dead for two to three years. Uranium would be an example in the energy sector. Corn, wheat, and soybeans over the last few years are an example of going to near zero. Sugar is now nearing what I consider theoretical zero, uh, uh-huh. and uh, so you know it's. You can't go down forever in those things. Now, meanwhile, a lot of other commodities are, are remaining firm. Gold's firm. It's a, all of 2.5% from a level that if I see a monthly close there, we're going to ignite the sky. That's 13.50. Right now it's 13.16. Um, silver's holding well. Oil is quite strong. Uh, the grains made a uh, couple-year highs in the past few weeks. They've had a little back-off since, but... In the bigger context, they've they've gained some good ground after a buy signal. Uh, so, you know, I, the Baltic Dry Index, which is an interesting metric, I'm starting to look at it right now. It's quite strong. Uh, you know, that's movement of commodities. Um, so that would be yeah, you're right. That's where people will go because in other words, the bond market betrays them, and we things related to that, such as REITs, um, you know, things like that, uh, and the stock market betrays them. Then where else do they go? Um, to decay yep. cash? No, they'll go to gold. Yeah, well, that's what I believe, um, and uh, time will tell. But your models are still looking strong. I, I know you've yes. you've uh-huh. talked about coming close to that uh, go neutral zone, yeah. but you haven't uh, many many times over the last year, uh, several times anyway. Uh, but it's still looking like it's going to hold at mm-hmm. that. Uh, that level, I guess. So I, I think so, and I think the recent strength in the dollar is deceptive. It is a counter-trend rally. It is not a bull market in the dollar. Uh, I just put out a report a while ago showing uh, the context since 2004 in terms of annual momentum of the dollar. When you look, it's a point and figure chart, actually, of the yeah. momentum, which is highly unusual. Uh, nobody else does that, I don't think. But uh, it, when you look at that chart, you chuckle if you, if you utter the words dollar bull. All right, we're going to have to leave it go at that, Michael. We're, okay. we're out of time, but thank you so much for your thank insights. You, always always helpful. Thanks for being with us, and we'll look to do it again next week, hopefully. Folks, don't go away. We've got to go take a commercial break. When we come back, Robert Carrington will be with me to talk about New Range Gold Corp and uh, what he's planning on the exploration front this year. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Robert Carrington. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. A gold rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike gold rush into one company, aptly named 
Klondike Gold Corps. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have Robert Carrington with me once again. He is the president and CEO, and he's also a director of New Range Gold Corp. He's had a, a, a very um, a very substantial history as an exploration geologist, working with several different companies uh, in the past, and um, really glad to have him with us again today. Thanks for joining me, Robert. Jay, thanks for having us. Always good to have you with me um, to talk about what you're planning to do with a company that I own shares in. New Range Gold Corp trades in Canada under the symbol NRG. Uh, You can buy it down here in the States, as I have under the symbol NRGOF. Uh, Roughly 75 million shares, but a market cap, minuscule market cap, about $13 million, 18 cents in U.S. money right now. Uh, Robert, I'd like to just get started for the benefit of those who may not be familiar with you. I know you've been on with us before, but we always have new listeners. So what do you? Uh, what is your business model? What You are an exploration company focused in primarily in Nevada, though you have some properties in Columbia as well. But what is your, um, what are you setting out to do? You're not planning to be a miner, I believe. You're probably an exploration company. What are your, what are your plans uh, for Nevada? Well, we first and foremost certainly are an exploration company. I have a long exploration history. I do uh, most of the uh, professionals involved with the company. But we also have uh, strong production backgrounds. I've uh, been employed or as either an employee or a consultant in uh, underground and open pit mines, and I've actually taken mines from uh, exploration hole number one through uh, through production and into closure. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the business model for New Range Gold really is to um, acquire, explore, and develop uh, high-quality assets in favorable jurisdictions. Now, whether that, uh, you know, the, the uh, acquiring and exploring uh, part of that equation is primarily in-house, and uh, generally the uh, uh, development would be through joint ventures, farm-outs, uh, other things where our shareholders would get the uh, the benefit of the exposure to production, but would also have a significant exit uh, strategy uh, going forward without suffering the uh, the tremendous dilution that a junior often suffers uh, if you try and develop a project by yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen it so, happen very often. Yeah, yeah, and you know the the fact uh, an awful lot of juniors think they can build mines, but if you've never built a mine, it's 
unlike anything you've ever experienced in your life. So, you know, I, I have done it. I know exactly what it takes. Um, I'm confident that the team we've assembled uh, could do it if that's where we uh, see that we need to go. And certainly that also adds a lot of value uh, and increases the likelihood of a, uh, a takeout. Mm-hmm. If uh, incoming uh, company can see a very clear road to a, uh, a production strategy. All right. So you know, every, everything we're doing is, is really geared toward moving all of these projects into production, uh, be it Pamlico or LWO or Uramolito down in Columbia. The, um, uh, you know, uh, the, the drilling we're doing is uh, geared toward identifying a multi-million ounce near-surface oxide gold deposit. Um, we're going to be, uh, uh, we actually have initiated uh, very early stage metallurgical test work on uh, some of our drill cuttings, and we'll be doing a lot more of that as uh, time goes on. And so, you know, we're we're essentially going down the road of looking like we're going into production, which makes it a lot easier for a, a company that's already in production but looking for more or replacement resources to uh, uh, take a serious look at uh, either buying the project or buying the other uh, company. Yeah, and doing early metallurgy makes a lot of sense, too, because if you have any problems uh, or the lack of them, you get that out of the way right away uh, before you start spending a lot of money proving up a resource that may maybe have its challenges. But you have a very, very large project. Uh, what is the size of your, and I'm talking about Pamlico in Nevada, what is the size of that land package, and how do you narrow in, how do you narrow down uh, your priority targets? The uh, well, Pamlico itself covers about twenty three hundred hectares. It mm-hmm. is mostly it's ninety nine percent unpatented mining claims on BLM administered public land in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And as far as prioritizing targets on a on a large land package, it it's actually we control the entire Pamlico mining district at this point. Mm-hmm. The uh, uh, Prioritizing is relatively simple. We just started with where we knew the most, uh, which was around the merit decline, where we had been able to do a lot of surface and underground sampling, started drilling there, and then we're uh, stepping out. As we learn more and more about the system, our exploration will become more and more effective, and we will carry that on into some of the other uh, target areas. Like, you know, right now we're uh, moving off, uh, we're starting to explore in the the Pamlico Ridge Zone, which is a tremendously large zone. And as we uh, uh, grow uh, further, we'll start exploring in the uh, parallel Gold Box uh, uh, Canyon Zone, which is a, a mile and a half long parallel zone to Pamlico Ridge. And uh, uh, then uh, on down the road, we'll be doing more and more work in the East Zone, where we see. Uh, uh, potential for sediment-hosted style mineralization. What would? What are your plans uh, for this year? What do you hope to achieve this year with your exploration program? Because it looks like you've got a lot of things, a lot to shoot at. I mean, you're looking at fairly sizable targets, as you just noted. And how soon might investors expect you to do enough drilling in one area to start pulling together uh, some sort of a resource so people can get a sense, a sense of what you might have and what you know, start to figure out what value they might be willing to uh, to prescribe to your project. Yeah, my 
my goal is is to assuming the the markets and everything hold together uh, for the remainder of the year is to complete a uh, sufficient amount of drilling to enable us to initiate a resource assessment uh, or a resource estimate uh, in early 2019. Mm -hmm. And that would require us putting at least probably another uh, 100 drill holes uh, into the Pamlico Ridge target. And we're really focused on the Merritt Zone, uh, where it intersects the Pamlico Ridge Zone, and on south to the uh, intersecting east-west zone, uh, as shown on maps that are on our on our website. Uh, the reason for this this is where uh, we we know the most about the structural uh, control of the gold mineralization there. Um, from everything that we've seen in our surface mapping, the gold mineralization seems to uh, share very common characteristics uh, up and down the uh, uh, Pamlico Ridge zone and the Merritt area, and. Uh, I, I don't want to run the risk of essentially becoming a badly scattered land and cattle company right. uh, where we drill a few holes here and a few holes over there, and at the end of the day, we've spent a whole bunch of money, and we don't have enough in any one place to come up with a resource. Right. No, that's, that's so some, of the, some of the outlying targets, like the, the East Zone, um, even the Gold Box area, uh, we have spectacular surface samples, excellent uh, geology, um, we until we uh, know a lot more about them or have a identified resource in the Pamlico Ridge Zone, um, all of these other major targets on the uh, in the district are going to receive very minimal attention. Um, you recently sent me a picture of uh, quite a lot of visible gold showing up in it. Um, you know, I've I've been to museums. I've seen spectacular specimens in the past. Uh, what should I take from this from this beautiful picture of uh, of a rock with lots and lots of gold in it? What what am I supposed to what what is it supposed to mean to me as a non geologist? Well, that that particular specimen was one that I picked up this last Friday while I was uh, down uh, reviewing the uh, the drill program with Nate Tewalt, and um, the the real takeaway from that is in part where it came from. It's approximately halfway between our east-west zone and the Merritt area in the direction that uh, we are currently uh, uh, planning on uh, moving the drilling. So we'll gradually be stepping off in this direction. Um, From a geological standpoint, it's an important specimen because it uh, shows uh, coarse gold in the quartz veins in the same uh, geologic environment, in the same uh, occurrence, as we see in some of the uh, the high-grade quartz veins near the Merritt area and elsewhere on, on Pamlico Ridge. And it just, um, it's another indication that we see the same style of mineralization all along that, uh, that general trend. And it, uh, uh, from in, in detail, that specimen is also indicating that the gold is really not occurring in the uh, massive white bull quartz where it could be more difficult to get. Mm-hmm. If you look at uh, where that gold is occurring in that rock, it's all in the, the brown iron oxides that are in the other uh, brechated quartz. So it, once again, it's uh, associated with the oxides, and it uh, uh, is not encapsulated by that quartz. So it, it should be a relatively simple milling process to recover mm-hmm. that gold. 
Yeah, well, that's why early on metallurgical studies are so important. How much money do you have, Robert, and, and do you, are you funded well enough to take you through this year, or are you going to have to raise some more money? That um, we Right now, we have uh, just under a million dollars in our treasury, and we have between four and $700,000 of additional revenues that will flow into the company because of joint ventures on the, uh, the Columbian uh, projects. Uh-huh. Um, whether that's enough to carry out all of the exploration this year uh, will depend on how many additional drill holes and how deep we drill. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly because we're, we are drilling reverse circulation at uh, Pamlico, our mm-hmm. drilling cost is a fraction of what uh, uh, core would cost. Sure. And, uh, you know, we're, we're typically able to drill. Our direct drilling cost is around $33 a foot, 32 to $33 a foot, uh, whereas um, core, and we, we would have to drill PQ core there at uh, uh, Pamlico. It's very large diameter, very mm-hmm. expensive. We'd probably be looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, uh, probably $100 a foot. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, possibly higher. All right, so I mean, uh, you sh- your hundred sh- holes you figure you need to drill uh, to come up with a resource. So they're relatively shallow. Is that, these are relatively shallow targets? I take it. For the most part, they are very shallow targets. We've drilled some deeper holes for stratigraphic uh, purposes because there are additional favorable uh, host rocks at depth at Pamlico, and we're we're tracking those, trying to build a good three D model so that we can then uh, effectively target. Uh, those at depth uh, at a later date. But most of our drilling is really focused. It's less than 500 feet deep. And All right, Robert, uh, with with just 30 seconds left, can you tell us uh, what investors should be watching for the next six months then? Drill results, I suppose, right? Okay, over the next six months, I think you'll see uh, joint ventures at both Eldobio and Uramolito. This will both bring money into the company, and it will uh, eliminate the uh, the drain on our uh, treasury supporting those projects. Mm-hmm. And as investment drivers, um, we should be getting our uh, initial uh, drill assays here in the next uh, week, or certainly coming weeks. Oh, good. Uh, metallurgical results will be a major driver. Okay. And uh, our favorable U.S. listing is going to be a going to be a big driver as we go forward on our marketing plans. Excellent. Very good. Well, we have some things to look forward. We don't have to wait too long the way it sounds. So uh, I thank you very much, Robert, for being with us again and uh, look forward to keeping up with you going forward into the future. You certainly do have a very exciting story with lots of high-grade assays, so we really watch you very carefully. Well, folks, it is all the time we have now for this segment. Uh, We're going to go to a commercial break, but don't go away. David Stockman will be with us to talk about why stock market bubbles can't last forever. Don't go away. We'll be right back with David Stockman. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. 
Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Novo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold Project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have David Stockman with me today to discuss why, amongst other issues, the Fed can't keep the stock market rising forever and uh, why we may be nearing the end of the second longest stock market bubble in our history. Well, most of you are very much aware of David Stockman, though perhaps many of you who are much younger than I don't remember how prominent he was in the national news for a few weeks back in the early 1980s when Democrats had a field day because, well, David Stockman dared to tell his boss, Ronald Reagan, the truth about tax cuts and budget deficits. David was never really, um, I think I'm, I'm fair in saying he was never really uh, sold on the idea of supply-side economics, as Art Laffer and Larry Kudlow and some others in the administration were. But he's always been forthright in, in telling people what he believes, and that's really why David is one of my favorite people. I always admire people who, uh, who really tell the truth, even when it doesn't benefit them and uh, when it may come at some cost to them. So I think our country would be a a whole lot better off if we had more people that tell the truth and, and let the chips fall where they may, as I think David has practiced throughout his life. For example, on uh, April 24th, in an interview on Fox Business with Maria Bartiromo and another very hostile anchor, lady anchor, uh, don't really remember what her name is. Well, David was at his combative best, and I would encourage all of you to watch that interview on YouTube. The link to that interview, you probably catch it at David's website, but it's also available at miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, along with a lot of other free market orientated articles that appear on my website at miningstocks.com. Thanks for joining me again today, David. Uh, happy to join you, and uh, I appreciate your recollection way back to the early 1980s. Well, I'm old enough That's to do not, that. Uh, Jay, I would say about that, I never did believe in some kind of economic magic about tax cuts, but I did profoundly think we needed much smaller government that would permit far lower taxes that would therefore unleash the uh, you know vital energies of the capitalist free market and that prosperity would unfold from there. But the difference I had with some of the more politically oriented so-called economists uh, back then advising uh, President Reagan was I felt you had to earn the smaller government by the tough job of taking on the entitlements, of recognizing that there's waste on both sides of the Potomac, that is the Pentagon side, as well as all the far-flung domestic agencies, and that therefore you needed a two-pronged balanced 
uh, program of cutting taxes and cutting spending because back then, which is profoundly different than today, and I think it goes to, you know, the current issue on people's mind, back then people still feared that big government deficits and huge treasury borrowing would cause a crowding out effect in the bond market, in the capital markets, and if you crowd it out, you obviously drove interest rates upward and in the end reduced private investment uh, in business especially but also in uh, residential housing and the other investment categories so and that was true actually yeah and what happened in 1987 and 1988 is as the Reagan deficits exploded to unseen, uh, unheard of levels, you know, 5, 6% of GDP, 200 billion a year. It doesn't seem like much now, but back then it was uh, frightful. Um, we almost got the day of reckoning when the stock market crashed in October to, uh, 1987, the famous 22% meltdown, uh, meltdown Monday or Black Monday. What happened at that crucial juncture is that Greenspan, the so-called gold bug, hard money man, you know, had just been put in at the Fed, panicked, opened up the spigots, and much to his surprise, everything calmed down, and he was a hero in Washington, and he never got over it. And from there, we were off to the races, 30 years of what I call monetary central planning, bubble finance. There's a lot of different ways you can describe it, but it led to what I would call a 30-year interregnum where uh, the federal government could get away with massive borrowing and a huge and steady increase in the public debt without the collateral effect of crowding out and pushing yields up and causing a crisis uh, in the capital markets and in the private investment sector. Well, what I'm saying today, and why I got into that huge spat with the uh, one of the hosts uh, on Fox that morning, is that era is over. Even the Keynesians at the Fed have finally recognized you can't run the pretty press red hot for all time, you know, into uh, eternity. They have now pivoted big time to what they're calling QT, which is simply shrinking the balance sheet and instead of buying up the debt of the federal government and thereby easing um, the supply-demand balance in the bond markets, they're now going to be shrinking their balance sheet, which is the same as dumping bonds into the uh, federal debt, into bonds. And it's a entirely different dynamic. I call it the combined financial arms of the federal government. Both arms, the Treasury and the Fed, are going to be dumping supply into the bond markets in dimensions that we've never seen before 10 years into a business cycle. Uh, you know, they're going to borrow $1.2 trillion of new debt at the Treasury. The Fed will be dumping $600 billion of existing debt into the same market. Now, that's roughly 9% of GDP. Nothing like it at this late stage of a business cycle. We're really long in the tooth here. And it's 
kind of the end game, the culmination of a 30-year uh, trip into economic fantasy land that began uh, in the latter part of Reagan's term after the deficits got out of control and the supply-siders convinced him not to worry about it, and then Greenspan uh, bailed out the situation and, uh, you know, put us on the road to this, uh, you know, tremendous uh, disorder that we have today. So it's a long uh, story, but yeah. it's, it's the 30-year uh, encapsulated summary of how we got from there to here, there being a wonderful idea of lower taxes and a smaller government, there being 22 trillion of public debt heading to 34 trillion within a decade by the Fed's or by CBO's own reckoning, and they're you know they're they have rosy. Uh, colored glasses on doing it. So uh, it's um, it's a different world. It's a dangerous world. And it's about to change big time. And that's why the stock market can't keep going up, <laughs> because the bond market is going to start uh, coming unstuck in a uh, epic, epical way. All right, David, I would like to ask you, going back to 1987, the stock market crash, I remember it very well. I was working uh, in a bank at the time. Um, wow, it was frightening. It was downright frightening. And the Wall Street Journal reported there were no takers for the most creditworthy, strong companies. There were no buyers of, of the shares of General Motors and some of the other strongest companies. It was it was indeed a very, very frightening period of time. I can remember being extremely unnerved by it all. And, I, and that was the time, though, that something was created called the I guess the Wall Street Journal called it the Plunge Protection Team. You weren't with, uh, you weren't any longer at the administration with uh, President Reagan, I believe, during the '87 crash, right? You had gone on to work. No, no, actually, I had gone. I had left the White House by then because I could no longer justify these huge deficits and the claim that well, if we waited long enough, we'd grow our way out of it. But anyway, I went to Wall Street was a partner at Solomon Brothers, and I remember the morning well. Probably I was even more intimidated than you were. Sure. And this is an interesting anecdote because I was asked that morning, it was a conference in Florida that Solomon Brothers was having for all of its uh, institutional investors, you know, the insurance companies, the pension funds, and mutual funds, and so forth. And I was giving a speech right as the market opened. That was back before, uh, you know, the days of cell phones and uh, uh, Twitter and all the rest of it. <laughs> but I still noticed that there... I thought it was a very impolite uh, chatter going on in the audience, and then one by one, people were getting up and leaving. Wow. And uh, by the time I finished my foreshortened speech, there was practically no one left in the room. Interesting. And there was a reason for it because the market had, you know, plunged within the time that I was uh, speaking, which wasn't all that long. You know, I think by 15% and it was still going down. So, you know, we, we haven't seen anything like that for the last 30 years, although we did have a few scary days uh, when the dot-com um uh, you know, uh, ionized in the spring of 2000, and also uh, some really bad days in October through February um, of the uh, uh, so-called financial crisis. But uh, since then, the market has been artificially um, supported and manipulated and pegged by a central bank 
that is completely out of control, but even that uh, central bank, the Fed, and other central banks, for that matter, around the world, have finally recognized they've got to back off, you know, this uh, kind of monster bubble they created. Now, they have the arrogant belief, twofold, one, that they can slowly, uh, you know, bring this back, uh, this bubble back down to earth, and secondly, that for all of their handiwork, they have uh, created a Goldilocks economy. Uh, in fact, I just saw John Williams, who, as you know, the Fed president in San Francisco, is now going to take over really the number two job, the Fed president in New York, which runs the open market desk. And uh, he was again saying, we're pretty much in a Goldilocks economy. You oh, boy. After, you know, you would think after the way that both Wall Street and the Fed heads got burned in the, you know, summer fall of 207 and uh, where they ended up in October the next year, that that word would be banished from the vocabulary. But here they are back, you know, crowing about 3.9% unemployment on the Fed's uh, completely um you know, manipulated and uh, distorted, uh, I mean, the BLS is manipulated and distorted uh, unemployment rate, and uh, they don't uh, see at all the fragility of the financial system, which I, I believe is very close to the edge, or the weakness of uh, and the imbalance in the Main Street economy. And I was writing about that today, and I just want to pass on one statistic that I have in my blog today, uh, David Stockman's Contra Corner, because it's startling. And that is, I indexed the industrial production, which is real physical output of the economy. And, you know, even though we're in 24-7 social media world today, I guess, still, I don't think there are too many rational people that would suggest you can have a prosperous economy without industrial production, right? Sure. But anyway, if you index that back to November of 207, the eve of the financial crisis, and here we are uh, in May 2018, so, you know, it's almost 11 years later, we went through the whole crisis and allegedly we recovered entirely. Here's the point. Industrial production today is only 1% higher than it was way back then. Wow. <laughs> But uh, real uh, personal consumption expenditures for durable goods are up 53%. Oh. Okay, now how in the world can we spend, and we're talking apples to apples here, this is physical or sure. real units, not inflationary uh, nominal dollars. Uh, how can you spend, uh, consume 53% more when you've produced only 1% more? Sure. Well, <laughs> you can do it, but you can't do it for or in a sustained or extended period of time, and you better be uh, alert for the fact that when you have imbalances of that magnitude, uh, you know, there is uh, a grave risk that something is going to come unstuck, uh, that you're going to be surprised uh, when things don't uh, continue uh, along the path of uh, Goldilocks economy that uh, our Fed heads and the Wall Street economists are talking about. So um, I think, you know, that's just another data point, and there sure. are many of them. 
that tell us, uh, you know, we're living on borrowed time, I think is the bottom line of the whole thing. Yeah, for sure. Well, um, many, many data points, and this is one of the things I would just tell my listeners uh, in your daily blog, um, there is so much meat, so much material there that uh, that really makes your case. While you can't, you know, you can't live the lie forever, eventually it's going to catch up with us. And this is the point, David, that uh, this the Fed has now recognized it can't continue pushing money interest rates down forever it's it's come to grips with that it seems to an extent anyway but this is going to be extremely painful how much higher do you think interest rates can go before it trips the system before we have the next the next collapse in the equity markets and the other thing is david it seems to me that going back to the plunge protection issue or the uh, more politely termed the president's working group it seems to me what happens as soon as the stock market starts to collapse all of a sudden there's some major Major buyers stepping in in the uh, in the futures markets, perhaps to steady it and keep it from keep it from collapsing entirely. In other words, just trying to keep people's confidence from collapsing. And um, I mean, how much longer can they do that? And then how will they respond when this thing comes unglued again? Because won't we go back for another gigantic, even bigger cycle? Because none of these cycles have been allowed to completely correct. You know, we've yeah. never gone back to correcting it, going back to the 1987. Even it's just one. one pile of credit and debt on top of another and how many how many more of these bubble cycles bigger and bigger cycles can we go before the whole system comes tumbling down well i mean you really have some great questions there and it's kind of the whole uh, jigsaw puzzle of um, the non-sustainability equation that we're enmeshed in but i'd say the first point is that we're the market is at the the you know the famous willy e coyote moment remember the roadrunners out there pedaling away furiously uh, over the edge of the cliff and suddenly realizes uh, he's you know suspended in midair. Well, I think that's where the stock market has been for at least the last two years from the election. I got a little thing in my blog today showing the 200-day moving average in the stock market, and every time the market is uh, uh, dropped uh, onto that 200-day moving average, it has bounced back. Uh, but lately, it is has not been due to any cash infusion or uh, dollar stimulus by the Fed because they stopped that uh, in late 2014. There's been some indirect help because the ECB was buying like there's no tomorrow uh, during the two years uh, after the Fed stopped. And, of course, the Bank of Japan keeps uh, printing money in large uh, dimension as well. Nevertheless, I think mainly, as I said in my blog today, those bounces off the 200 DMA have been faith-based rather than Fed-enabled. And when uh, one of these days when uh, we get uh, some, you know, some kind of black swan or I call it orange swan <laughs> after the guy in the Oval Office or red swan if the red Ponzi in China really begins to come unraveled, which I think the potential is uh, enormously there, some kind of shock is going to wake the market up to the fact that the Fed isn't there, there isn't a Powell put anywhere near where the market is today because Powell and um, the rest of them believe they've done such a great job of, you know, reviving the economy after the crisis and the Great Recession that somehow now it's as strong as an ox and that it's running on its own momentum and that therefore they can undertake the next step 
that, which is not, as you and I would look at it, <clears throat> a return to sound money and perhaps, uh, you know, setting aside the, quote, emergency um, measures that, uh, you know, Bernanke and the others uh, justified at the time of the crisis. Uh, you know, it's not that they have had some kind of moment of enlightenment, but it's really a imperative coming from institutional uh, thinking that their enormous power in our financial system and in our democracy, really, they have more power than any senator or cabinet officer if you're sitting on the open market committee, um, is due to the fact that they can always uh, rescue the economy, uh, not, uh, not actually, but in appearance uh, from a recession. And that's really what gives them their uh, political uh, uh, authority and uh, credibility um, and uh, independence. And if they don't have the capacity to quickly and promptly remedy the next recession, which even they know is not that far around the corner, we're in month 107 of this expansion, the longest in history was 119 months in the 90s when things were a lot better than they are today, but if they don't have the dry powder uh, re, uh, you know, regathered, re, uh, reinstituted, uh, they won't be in a position to help. Now, what I mean by that is, when the crisis came. Uh, in early 2000 with dot-com, they were at six and a quarter interest rates. They got it all the way down to 1%, got a mortgage boom going and a short-lived uh, housing uh, uh, boom. But uh, they looked like they were magicians at the time. And then in 2009, uh, 2008, when we had the next crisis, you know, overnight rate, the funds rate was 575 and they got it way down to zero. Now, our point, my point is today, they've barely got the uh, funds rate off the flat line. And they don't have any uh, running room uh, to, t to uh, you know, uh, cure the next recession. Right. So they are now hell-bent on normalizing both interest rates, but especially their balance sheet, shrinking it down substantially so that next time uh, that when the cavalry is needed uh, to deal with the inevitable business cycle uh, contractions that occur, uh, they'll be ready, able, and uh, effective. But And, and that's, that's important because, you know, you listen to some of these talking heads on Wall Street, and it's always been over the last couple of years about how data-dependent yeah, uh, the Fed is, and how Yellen had her 19, you know, uh, displays on her uh, monitor of different aspects of the labor market and other uh, incoming data that she looked at. The point here is they're not at all data dependent on QT on this 600 billion per year shrinkage rate, which is going to begin in October of the Fed's balance sheet. That's an institutional imperative. It's a march that won't stop unless things really get bad. And if the market really falls apart, then they realize there is not a uh, Powell put at the 200-day moving average, uh, which is uh, you know only a hundred points slower than where we are now, um, we're going to really um, 
you know, have a day of reckoning, I think. So you really think that they'll stick to this, uh, to the policies, the QT policies. They really will pull money out of the system. Uh, yes. So unless, unless some, unless all hell breaks loose and then they'll, and then they'll gun it again, won't they? They'll pump huge amounts of money back into the system. And then what happens to the Fed's credibility? Well, I think that's, uh, you know, that's kind of a chicken and egg, but I, I don't think the market's going to collapse all at once. It's going to kind of stair step its way down as the, uh, dip buyers become less and less confident that they know where the floor is, where the foot is, because I think it's dramatically lower than where the market closed today at 2672 uh, uh, on the um, S&P 500. I think it's hundreds of points below that, and they're going to, um, you know, allow the market to drift lower. Now, there will be uh, open mouth intervention. In other words, you had some Fed heads talking about how steady as she goes and a bunch of other meaningless stuff like that, or they may skip a, a meeting in terms of a scheduled interest rate. But frankly, what they're doing today is not a result of forward guidance or as a result of 25 basis point increases in the federal funds rate, which nobody pays anyway. It's not a real interest rate. What is important is the drain, the cash drain of their balance sheet shrinkage operation. And you know, the interest rate thing is kind of a misdirection, uh, uh, and it's uh, something Wall Street uh, is totally obsessed with because that's the way the Fed has operated historically. But uh, we're now in an environment where, you know, they've taken the balance sheet from about $800 billion at the time of the crisis to $4.5 trillion, and they're now in a big-time shrinkage that um, totally uh, overshadows and overwhelms the impact of what they're doing on the interest rate. And that shrinkage, I think, Think they will keep going, and as they stay on that path for the next uh, few months or quarters, the market is going to be stair-stepping its way down, trying to find the bottom where uh, the power put uh, becomes effective. Now, frankly, I don't know where it is, but I, I'm sure it's a lot lower than it is today, and it's very... Uh, probable that in that search for the new Powell put that the market will, um, you know, uh, lose confidence. And then you have all of these built-in mechanisms, the ETFs and uh, all of the levered bond funds and, uh, you know, uh, the uh, uh, risk parity trades it. You know, the market is full of these devices that could all start unwinding, and then uh, the market will drop big time before the Fed can uh, get its guns back out. So, I, you know, I think uh, this is going to be a totally different cycle than last time. Uh, I'm not sure where the bottom's going to be. It's a lot lower than it is now, but it's going to be an L-shaped rather than a V-shaped bottom because the Fed doesn't have any dry powder. Any dry powder left. Well, we're basically out of time, but just perhaps take a few uh, a few more seconds to answer a couple of quick questions. Where do you think this takes us? And it's a different kind of a cycle. Last time we saw, you know, a collapse in prices, commodity prices. Gold even went down briefly. But then when the Fed started goosing the system, gold and some other things, commodities had quite a run, you know. And, and of course, housing prices ultimately came back artificially stimulated by more and more money putting into the system, all kinds of other government intervention. But what's your best take? What should investors really 
be doing now? Get getting out of stocks, of course, getting out of bonds, building cash, owning some gold. Uh, what what would you suggest? Two, I think there are two things. One, uh, the one asset that I believe will appreciate when everything else is uh, resetting and correcting lower is gold, because uh, when we get the reset lower on bond prices, which are clearly going to happen, yields will be at three fifty four percent on the ten year uh, within a year, in my judgment, and the reset in the stock market, which will be hundreds of points lower than where it is today, um, you know, the uh, gold will um, become the asset of choice because it's the one um, monetary uh, instrument, let's say, that um, the central banks uh, really cannot uh, easily manipulate. So I would say cash is a good thing to build because stuff will be a lot cheaper to buy several years down the road. And gold is a good thing to buy now because uh, the price will move inversely to the correction on Wall Street uh, that is uh I think just around the corner. All right. Well, there you have it, folks, uh, from David Stockman. Not only was he an advisor to President Reagan, he's also a, a professional Wall Streeter. I don't know if he wears that badge with pride or not, but he certainly knows the money markets inside and out, and he's always been a very honest person, always giving his views what he believes, even when it wasn't self-serving. David, I want to thank you very much for being with us again. And, folks, it's uh, David Stockman's ContraCorner.com. Go there to learn more about it. He's a very reasonably priced, affordable service, I must say. I pay for it, enjoy it every day. Thank you, David, for being with us again. I hope we can talk to you again sometime fairly soon. Jay, we certainly will because uh, this story is just getting started. Oh, I'm, I'm afraid it is, and I'm not sure that I'm happy about that. But it is what it is, and we want to be prepared for it as best we can. So thank you very much, David. Well, folks, next week, Michael Oliver will be with me again. I'm going to be talking to Anthony Weiner of the Monetary Metals and also Darren Wagner of Balmoral Resources. They'll be my guests next week. Until then, goodbye, and God's blessing. Blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Montero Resources, an advanced exploration company, is aggressively expanding its high-grade Gladiator gold deposit in Quebec, Canada. Over the last 12 months, Bonterra has raised over $60 million and has attracted strategic investors Eric Sprott, Kirkland Lake Gold, and New York-based Vanek Gold Fund. Bonterra is focused on updating its 43-101 resource in the second half of 2018 and will incorporate up to an additional 100,000 meters of drilling, where the dimensions of the Gladiator deposit have been expanded to date nearly 500%. Bonterra trades in Canada under the symbol BTR and in the U.S. under the symbol BONXF. Orin Resources is a technically driven, capital-efficient exploration company focused on delivering shareholder value through accretive project acquisition and discovery. The company's management team has a record of success in the discovery, advancement, and monetization of exploration assets. Orin's focus is on advancing its seven premier gold exploration projects located in Canada and Peru. Orin's shares trade on the TSX in Canada and the NYSE American in the U.S. under the stock symbol AUG. For more information, please visit orinresources.com.